We are not heroes, nor are we villains, neither kings nor magicians, but we can tell you their stories. We are the Lore Keepers, and we welcome you to Halloween. To the far west, further than you can ride in a fortnight, there is a forest of glass. Tucked into a large valley, it seems to shift and glimmer from high up. Riding down into it is <laughs> a death wish, as it is not only the trees, but indeed even the underbrush is, that is made of glass too. Oh, you may hear this and say, oh, how can this be? Ah, but... You have not seen the world as I have. When I was a young lad, I was hungry to see far lands. And one day, I met an old hermit who told me how such a thing could be. That told me that there was once a desert. It was vast and barren, as these things tend to be, and there was very little place for animals to hide from the burning dark of the sun. They stuck to the caves and burrowed under the sand and would wait until the chill of night to come out. On one such night, thin but mighty strands of shifting light, living magic, they say, wove their way overhead. They were beautiful and powerful. The creatures of the desert looked up to them, not knowing what they were, not knowing why they could not look away. The next night, the lights returned again, and the night after that, and the night after that, Pretty soon, other critters were beginning to make their way into the desert just to go watch the lights above. Not only did they find those ribbons, but they found something else. A small pool of water, so rare in those days, had begun to form in the middle of the desert, thanks to the manna that flowed overhead. As the months passed, that puddle got bigger. Pretty soon, the critters weren't the only ones. There must have been quite the commotion when the first nomads made their way into the desert. They'd been wandering for a long time, but here they hoped to settle down. The nomads called those lights sacred, a blessing, and began to defend the desert from other tribes that would intrude. And every night, the streams of manna in the sky grew ever stronger. The nomads started to give the magic of that desert some meaning. Children were blessed if they were born at night. Shamans and medicine folk learned to draw from the streams above, calling on their power to strengthen the weak. And still the lats grew, and the hearts of the folk below grew with them. But it couldn't last forever. Elsewhere in the world, people were getting clever, learning all sorts of cunning to use the world around them. And so, one day, caravans guarded by soldiers came to begin a town by the water's edge. I doubt the nomads lacked it, but what say have you got when an army's at your doorstep? They fought. They lost. Turns out the folk that settled down knew a thing or two about magic, too. And soon large fields of grain replaced that desert. In the middle of those miles and miles of fields, that little town grew into a small city. And then a big one. And still those lights shone, each night, over the spires of churches and shacks alike. And as the way things tend to go, that city became a nation. And if you know your history, nations mean wars. Other folk, folk from far away, wanted access to those streams in the sky. And so things turned out about how you'd expect. There was killing and living. There were folk left behind by the brave. Babies who never know their ma or pa, and so forth. Got so the armies of other nations arrived in that capital and took that city from those folk, burned it to the ground, tore its mortar apart. They took the inhabitants away as slaves to live in exile. 
then that kingdom by the lake wasn't so splendid no more. And for a long while, it was just the animals again, living in the ruins. They started to grow over with all sorts of foliage. And there, by the shore of that beautiful lake, and that pretty green place, a forest grew from the foliage. Of course, where there's a forest, there's elves. And so that forest had new tenants. And they brought their slaves with them. Some very unhappy humans. Life was simple for a time. Simple as it can be for one folk that count another to be worth enslaving. But what could the men and women do but serve the elves? It was the only life they knew. That's what the elves told themselves anyways. And that is, of course, before tales of rebellion began to prick the humans' ears. Stories of heroes among their kin and other wares fighting back. So these gents and ladies found powerful beings to strike deals with, to give them the power they needed to fight back. So the stories go. One night, a young lady who lost her child to her masters called upon those beings to give her power to make the elves see. Let them see as she did, feel what she felt, what it was like to live the way they were. I suppose, in a way, that wish was granted. The lights in the sky were pulled to the ground, striking her body like a lightning rod. And from her, the wish went out into the forest, crystallizing every living thing into one mirror for the elves to peer into. The forest of glass. Of course, after the streams of color touched the ground, there wasn't a living soul in leagues with eyes with which to look upon the display. And that was the last time anybody in that valley saw those ribbons of light in the sky. Can you see now? Do you see what the folk of that valley couldn't for all those ages? Think now. They didn't know why they came to the valley. Do you? Because before the elves and their human slaves, before the kingdom and its enemies, before the tribes came, hell, even before the animals of the desert, there were those streams of light. Magic. It's what they all come for, whether they know it or not. It's why they migrate a hundred or a thousand miles into their valleys. You know, there's something out there. Something about magic that pulls at us, like, like little compasses in our heads. You know that sensation, don't you? It's why we go to temple. Why we do a good turn for our neighbor. And why we feel guilty about the little lie. Sometimes we hear a small voice. Others feel a feeling. Some don't feel much at all. They just seem to know what they're supposed to do. Mortals and gods don't share much, but what we do share is that same thirst for magic. It's everything. It's all the wars and heaven and the hells, every victory and every pain. The whole of known history on this twice-blessed, thrice-cursed world is Nothing more than a thirsty man dragging himself through an endless desert, hoping that oasis in the distance isn't just another mirage. Excerpt from The Trials of the East Dietrich Bonnewell, 3rd Baron of Ken, 463 AQN So this is Lore Keepers, a lore-building podcast where we explore eons of history, heroes and villains, and the forces that whirl about it all. I'm Frank, one half of our small crew. And I'm Carter, Frank's other half. <laughs> My other, yes. We're, uh, <laughs> we're, we're platonic life partners. There you go. No. We're, we're good friends um, that were united by our interest in a world that I had started to create. Um, so whether you're interested in stories or looking for inspiration in your own world building, or perhaps you want to participate in it, um, settle in. We'll tell you all about what we're talking about, which 
what are we talking about today, Carter? What are we exploring? I gotta, I gotta look at the title. It's like, uh, we're exploring the nine flow, magique, and the abstracts. Magique is French for magic. Um, yeah, basically this episode, we realized that there were kind of, we wanted to sweep a few things together under one umbrella, and that umbrella being kind of what is magic and how does it work and um, what is its importance. And no, we're not going to get super complicated with that stuff. Um, we're not going to get into the, you know, you know, as we've kind of mentioned before, the pseudoscience behind, you know, the implications or, uh, or you know, it's not a cellular thing. <laughs> but we are going to talk about it. Yes, exactly. We're not going to talk metachlorians, but there is quite a bit of complexities that go into where it comes from and its implications on people's lives. And we thought it'd be good to kind of pull all of those different threads together under one umbrella and talk about it with a kind of a clean reference point. Yeah, so I think we should start with the source. Where does it all come from? The source? Well, so... That's a good question. Are we talking source as in like the ultimate capital S source that even the nine flow comes from? Or are we talking about, are you talking about the nine flow? I mean, now that you've said, I was talking about the nine flow, but now you said the ultimate source, like we got to say that. And then we can say the source of the nine flow. Yeah. Okay. So when it comes down to it, really, uh, as it's known by the people who live in the world of Halime, the or worlds, I suppose I should say, considering it's, you know, multi-dimensional realms. Uh, the Nine Flow is known to ultimately be sourced from the creator god own. That the way that they manifest, the Nine Flow manifests, is aspects of the personality, the character of own, the creator god, manifest through creation. So um, what's this look like? Well, basically, it all starts with the Ethereum, which um, we've talked about a few times, but basically is the heavens. It is it is the world beyond. It is, you know, where people go to die, depend, depending, some people go to die. Some people, oh man, that we'll have to actually have an episode about the afterlife. Um, yeah, yeah, I think death and what comes after is a great name for a, pod, a podcast episode. I actually like that. We'll definitely have to tick that one off for future reference. Yeah, future future Frank, make a note of this. Yeah, yeah. If this was a if this was a Telltale Games, a little pop up would have showed up that says Frank will remember this. I hope I'll remember this. But um, yeah, so the Ethereum is yeah, it's the world beyond. It's the place of the afterlife. It's where the gods reside, and etc. You know, it's a million analogs and different. Um, <laughs> religions and whatnot. In uh, in the world of Halime, what that looks like is um, that each one is built on the back of each, each, each segment of the Ethereum, for there are nine of them, um, is sort of built on the back of, it's all uh, sourced from and comes from the abstracts, which we have mentioned before. Um, the abstracts are basically these nine aspects of or these nine divisions of the nature of own made manifest. And um, they are perfection, charity, ambition, creativity, wisdom, truth, joy, will, and peace. It's sort of the observable, the observable effects of the creator God on um, sort of shadowy, their, their shadowy touch on the, on the world, or maybe like very light, dim touch from a distance um and Unseen. so yeah so it's Can not you shadowy well i mean it's you know not everybody thinks of uh own as being an entirely moralistic creature i mean some people some philosophers would see it as you know their evil is also comes from uh, them because if they're the creator then all good and all evil came from them other people have kind of a different perspective about that but that's <laughs> that's a rabbit trail so anyways you've got the abstracts right um, sort of in a time before time, um, they flowed through, well, there was not, there was not a nothing for them to flow through. They had to flow through a medium. And as a result, almost by just ne the ne necessity of the occupation, a, uh, land was created around each one of them. And that quote unquote land, um, does not have a sentience and it does not have a, a, a knowing capital K knowing as, as as we refer to the race, the sentient races of Halime, but it does have a will. A will is, is related to its abstract. So for 
you know, for the land of perfection, um, it is related to perfection. Um, for the land of charity, a person in the presence of that flow it feels incredibly charitable. Um, for a person who, you know, walks in the world of creativity, they feel immensely, like, inspired all the time. So and then this kind of gets down to the manifestation, the visible manifestation of what this looks like. Um, these are, they show up in the animus, these, you know, these kind of, did I use that word yet, animus? Um, I don't think you've defined it properly. Okay, well, so I'll kind of fill in the gap there. I realize I kind of jumped ahead of myself. The animus are basically what, that's just what the name is called for the, the quote-unquote medium that they move through. So you've got an abstract and an animus that are paired together, and you can think of the comparison as being literally like a river flowing through a countryside. The countryside is the animus, and the river itself is the abstract. So a river of truth flowing through a land that then the type of you could think of it as like flora and fauna that is birthed there you know the ecosystem around it is based on that kind of nourishment that it brings so everything about it is about like um understanding and truth and anybody who would walk those uh, lands would be filled with a sense of awareness of 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 knowledge so all that happens right you've got the you've got the nine flow flowing through the these different or, or different animus and that all has to go somewhere. So rivers always have an end, or they at least have like an outflow. At first they didn't. Um, at first they kind of just pooled into uh, into nothingness or nowhere. Um, but of course, you know, nobody was around to really observe that at the time, at least nobody but the regents themselves. Um, and so as a result, you know, we don't exactly have a lot of history about what that was like or what that implies. Side note, a little green text on the side here. That's something that um, I think we we have talked about this. Right, Carter? We kind of talked about perspectives in terms of like who is talking and who is, uh, you know, where all of this history is coming from. And I think we kind of agreed that we want it to be something that feels like this is as much as a person, or maybe a little bit more than a person could contend with who actually lived in the world proper. Yeah, this is like the knowledge that people could obtain if they had access to, you know, everything. Yeah, every library or whatever, if they had, you know, basically a Google search, you know, in their own world, which they don't. I can just put, I can lay that one down right now. <laughs> Pretty sure that Google does not exist in the world of Halloween. But um, one thing that you mentioned, one thing you mentioned that you didn't uh, explain, when, when you were describing, you know, the pooling of the abstracts at one point, how they used to do that, mm-hmm. you said the regents, right, mm-hmm. observed this. Yeah, could we say a little bit about the regions? I don't know yeah. if we've crossed that path yet. We've yeah, we've definitely touched on them before, but we've never really described them as more than just being the gods of the Ethereum. Which you know, I understand that there's a lot here, and so you know, refreshes are important. But uh, even more than that, yeah, we've never really talked about in specific what the regions are and kind of their relationship to all this. And honestly, I think that's maybe a proper episode in itself. But we can definitely kind of part the curtain a little bit more on their nature and what they are so you want me to when give Owen, my two cents and see how yeah right yeah I am? why don't you yeah you go ahead and drop some knowledge man i'll i'll drop some fat fat knowledge hypothetical facts? beats yes yeah, yeah. so wait on me daddy-o from what, as i understand as i understand uh there are nine regions one for each flow and they are kind of affected by their abstract, in a way, like um, Autar, the region, the regent of will. Of course, I'm going to use him as an example. Mm-hmm. Is incredibly willful and like a, a force of will in and of himself because of the abstract that he governs or you know stewards. Right, and um, the, he was all the nine regions replaced there by own. I want to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So before, you know, in pre-creation, before, you know, the materium, the physical world, the, the place where, you know, the mortals dwell, before the materium was created, um, before, you know, anything but the ethereum was around, the regents stood as sort of, you can think of almost like a, yeah, necessary steps in setting up something bigger. Um, but yes, they were created as, uh, as, as, um, purveyors or, or or sort of the ultimate manifestations you could almost honestly 
in kind of a strange way, you could think of them as being the progeny of their of their combined abstract and animus. They're like solidified flow or something. They're they're the yeah they're the product of will and um and and their animus. So uh, which is kind of a little odd when you think of you know the literal abstract of will. It makes it a little you know my my wording there makes it a little more complicated to try and contend with. But in that case, I more just mean to have a, a, a directive, to have a, a goal in mind. You know, the animus is capable of having a goal or a directive, even though it's not sentient. And the abstract is capable of, you know, providing, you know, in this case, will, you know, a, a drive. Um, and when the two combine, it's sort of, um, you know, the, the manifestation of action. Um, and that that becomes like a sentient being. So sort of you could, you can kind of compare it to how maybe I'm botching this, but I'm pretty sure Zeus and his the his siblings were birthed from the sort of the primordial chaos. Right. There were sort of these elemental gods that the Titans that came before him. Maybe I'm mixing up stuff because I know the Titans were also uh, considered. I believe it was Cronus. Uh, I don't remember Cronus's wife. Yes. But Cronus with a K, I think, because Cronus with a C was a different thing. Um, Kronos with a K had a wife. I don't know if he was the primordial chaos is more like Gaia and um, then the sky. I forget the sky God's name. They made the Titans and the Titans made the gods. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I think it was something along those lines. But basically what I'm getting at here is just that like nobody really sees it that way within the world of Helme. At least nobody on, you know, in kind of the more in the nations that I focused on, <laughs> to be honest, you could always just look somewhere else i'm sure we could add that um which now see now i'm now i've got my wheels turning I'm like oh that's kind of cool i could totally see a cult being built around like the elemental chaos of you know the abstract and the animus and their progeny and whatever but yeah basically for all intents and purposes you can kind of think of it as being you know if not the progeny or the offspring the byproduct like the result of you know you know a chemical combination you mix these two things and you get a regent um, and so, yeah, so what, what you were saying with um, them being kind of the ultimate manifestation of their abstract, I would totally agree with that statement. What I would say is, is that they are basically, if you were to take a person who, uh, you could take, you know, any person and imagine them spending their whole life drinking from, I don't know, say there's a well that, you know, gives you, yeah, there's a river that gives you knowledge every time you drink of it. You're just a little bit smarter. And the, you spend your entire life before time exists, you know, there's there's not even um, an amount of time that could measure how long you've been drinking from it. And you have been drinking from it forever. So basically, you are an all knowing being. So, you know, one regent might be all knowing the other, but might lack empathy, because, you know, uh, charity is a different part of the of the realms of the, the Ethereum. So then you have another regent who's all about charity and is all about empathy, and they are the most empathetic um, and like being to exist. They are sort of empathy personified. Um, and you know, we can we could kind of keep going with all the different nine flow and talking about how each one is just you know the the apotheosis of their um, experience, but they're almost more that sort of holy idea, that ideal that they represent, than they are a living creature. Um, and so as a result, um, something that is kind of necessary, um, if you want to create a functioning world, especially if it is, it is like there's ruling and there's delegation and there's management, is, you know, you can kind of think of it as, you know, highly biased rulers who only see their own country. You know, you've got nine of these, you know, quote unquote countries, these heavenly countrysides, and each one crosses over with the others. Um, and so, you know, the regents are aware of each other and they talk to each other just as much as any gods in a pantheon would. Um, but they also can really not not see much beyond their own realm. So what they need is, is they need um, mediators, they need council members to interact with the other so you know each each one kind of holds counsel with anywhere from two to as many as eight or even 16 other um lesser deities that are you know or sometimes they're deities sometimes they're just like archangels but they they help to manage the you know intermediation between them how's that for a little a little discourse on them oh geez now i'm thinking about like the minor deities that are like you know one part will, one part truth, and one part, you know, yeah, yeah, charity. Like that, you can get some really cool stuff with that. 
Absolutely. So it's, you know, you started to get into sort of the strange alchemy of holy, you know, mix the mixture of holy ideas. You know, if you take yeah one part um, joy and two parts, you know, war or, you know, wisdom, like what does that make? You know, and that's and that's one of the things that really excites me about coming up with deities is I wanted them to feel like they weren't just here or there. Here's the elements or here's the you know, here's the God of darkness. Here's the God of light. Here's the God of good. Here's the God of evil. You know, I feel like that's kind of reductive and yeah. it, it's, you know, all, everything in Hell is about personalities cool shit. influencing. <laughs> yeah, pretty much personality bullshit. But, um, but Frank, I got something for you. Got some interesting. Yeah, what's up? So ambition and will are both kind of like partner flows in the nine flow, right? ambition and which they're similar in some way a will oh well yeah i would say i would say there's definitely a connection between the two yes what would the child of ambition and will look like holy crap i don't know man i'd have to think about that i'm there trying you to go. that's a god for you ambition, ambition and, will. and will yeah see we could spend all day just mixing all these different nine ones together to get all sorts of different concoctions i mean that one's a real aggressive one i think they are Honestly, that sounds a little bit like the portfolio of uh, of the the nameless one. Really, I mean, oh, if you shit. think about it, you know, because they're now the thing is, is they're an entity. Well, hold on now, because we never have really decided what exactly the nameless one is, and that I don't could think have been that the nameless the people one. People of Helme would know completely, but I could see that. Although the thing is, is they never desired, they never coveted the throne of own themselves. You know, it wasn't like they wanted to supplant them. It was, if anything, I would say it'd maybe be progeny of creativity and perfection. I would say, you know what? Yeah, I would say because ambition and will is probably more like, you know, typical Satan in a Judeo-Christian you know, origin. But creativity and and and. Yeah, creativity and perfection, because their because their whole thing is you know that the world of the the material realms is imperfect. You know, it's it's a it's a place where it's like we had perfection. Why would you sully it? How dare you? You know, Creator God, move on from our realms to another. You know, what we had was beautiful, and you've made something horrible. I don't know if creativity fits in there. Maybe will and perfection. Yeah, I mean, we could go round and round the mulberry yeah, bush on this one. I and think. it would also depend on, like, if we're making the minor gods or when you're making the minor gods, how many, like, do you want to have, have it be, like, a three-way thing or, like, a two-way thing or have, like, you know, the two ways are more powerful than the three ways? Or, you know <laughs> are we talking about a threesome here or what? It's true. No, def- definitely an interesting thing. I mean, we should talk about that. See, here's here's what, what I would just say to that, um, you know. Tell us what you think. Uh, you can reach uh, you can reach us at um, on Twitter at one thousand icons number one word thousand icons or you know just uh, you know let us know what you think you know might be a good representation of that. I mean that's this is this is part of why we're opening this up is because we think uh, other people have good ideas too and we want people to feel like they can contribute. But I realize at this point we're kind of getting off track. Yeah, we're really off track. About magic. So yeah. I'm gonna bring us back in. Yeah, why don't you just like, you know, so abstract, you know, there's nine of them. They got their regions and they're flowing. They're doing the weird, you know, flowing thing through the animus. Right. Right. So then they, you know, connect up to our lovely Sadar. Right. Right. So they 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 reach out to the Materium like once once that stuff was all in place, we'll kind of skip forward a few nameless ages of time here um, into the world of like well, time. Yeah, when everything kind of connect back, connects back up, you've got um, Sadar, you've got the, you know, or just the, you know, the, the cosmos in general, um, and you've got the Nine Flow now has somewhere to pool into. So for the longest time, all of this kind of energy that had been pent up and connected um, to nothing has somewhere to flow into. And so it starts to really just, you know, rain down. Um, and what that looks like is, you know, you have a, a cosmos that is just flooded with magic. Um, the people of, of Halame call it the Arcane Sea. When they look out at the night sky, that's what they call it. Um, stories say that it used to be filled with light, um, that in the in the time before time, 
there were no stars in the sky, but that there was um, there was just kind of this this directionless light that came always, and it didn't burn people's eyes because they were you know able to see in it. Yeah, you know, sort of you get like this Elysium holy light kind of mentality. So nobody knows whether that's true or not because you know once again nobody's been around since then. But um, that's kind of what people believed. That actually kind of reminds me of, of something that I was. Um... Listening to my audiobook, Lord of the Rings, just a few days ago. And after Gandalf the White comes back, Gandalf comes back as the White, and he's talking to Aragorn and Gimli, and, you know, they're like, oh my god, you came back? And he's like, yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he's like, oh, it's time for, we gotta go. Like, we got shit to do. He looks, it makes a note to say he looks directly up at the sun. Like, he looks at the sun. <laughs> and I'm like, this is kind of crazy. <laughs> that is pretty crazy. Yeah, no, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, I mean, it was definitely like a feeling of like, you know, imagining the same way that we have a night sky, it'd be like having a, a sky filled with light. I, I can't really even picture that completely, um, but that's, you know, what they say. Anyway, so, you know, the, whatever it looked like, they call it the Arcane Sea because it's sort of believed that the, the dark beyond um, is dark because it, you know, because it is not filled with light that, you know, the nine flow and the way that it would have manifested would be in these multivaried, you know, colors of light that pour into the world. And these days, you know, kind of after the ash curse, you know, see episode one, um, after the fall of creation, after, you know, gods and mortals were separated, um, there was a, uh, there, there was a great loss in terms of, you know, this sense of being supported. So these days, what it looks like is you've got these ley line spires. Now, we've kind of we actually kind of talked about the first one in the previous episode um, with uh, with uh, oh shit, what's the name of the city? I don't remember. Ob- Oberiska. That's the one. <laughs> Prague. <laughs> um, with Oberiska, we talked about kind of the first ley line spire being created and the treaty between the Shrouded Empire and the, the, the Gnomish civilization of, you know, well, Gnomish and other cultures, civilization of Oberiska to strengthen the net and to create a net that ran across the entire surface of Halome um, to bring magic back. Um, and when they um, start creating this, you know, this, this net and because of result, their discoveries, which you can definitely check out the previous episode if you're more curious about that. Um, I think that it'd be way too much to try and cover if we were to do a summary of that. But um, these spires, uh, people discover a way of collecting trace amounts of, of, of magic out of the nine flow. Um, and so these spaces, these places are known now as tributaries. You can sort of think of it as literally where uh, a river delta meets a, uh, the sea, except it's in reverse. Instead of the river flowing into the sea, it's, it's, it's flowing from the sea. You've got, you know, your, if you think of the arcane sea as being, you know, the space beyond the world itself, you know, beyond the firmament in the sky, the rivers then flow out of the sky and down into the world to bring, you know, life and light and power um, through whatever of the nine flows abstracts it, um, you know, it may, it may be releasing. Oh, oh, random idea. Yeah, shoot. I love doing these because it's all oh, just strange. So, uh, you know, what? I'm taking a class in ancient Egypt, right? Mm-hmm. So the Nile's a big thing. Real important. Sure, yeah, totally. What if during certain... Epochs, and you tell me. Maybe you, maybe you've already got this in here, but maybe there's like a stronger flow, just in the nature of it, right? You know how the Nile flows. Oh, sure. Kind of like having a, a drought season or a flood season. Yeah. So basically, the Nile floods very, very um, regularly. They can track it basically, and sometimes Ooh. it'll be really high flood, and there'll be a lot of destruction. And sometimes it'll be a really low flood, and they'll be like, well, we can't grow enough crops to feed everybody. Someone's going to starve. Sure. I mean, and then you create irrigation. Dude, magical irrigation. What would that even look like? Like, not even necessarily having to do with crops, but like collecting magic in, in specific ways. I mean, it's kind I mean, of what... Yeah, it's what the gnomes Really, that's kind of what the gnomes and the angels figured out together, is, yeah. is how to, quote-unquote, irrigate magic, which... Holy crap, that makes me a little bit more proud of what I came up with, what we came up with there. That's, But dude, I love that idea. I mean, I think it'd be really interesting. There's a couple of different ways you could make that where, you know, 
in one situation you have the irrigation of magic is this it happens over the course of yeah like you said epochs so maybe a drought season could last for a thousand ten thousand years maybe a flood season could last for you know ten thousand years or something like that or maybe it's hell it could even be shorter you know by the day yeah kind of like um like ancient earth's like ice ages Mm -hmm. yeah kind of thing it's almost like Man, I could almost see that as being sort of an alternate history of of like kind of to explain the you know Avum Secunda, the time between thought the you know the age of the dark, the dark sun is it was just like oh well this was just a magical ice age is what it was. I mean, there you go. I don't think that that's yeah. I mean, I mean that's wrong. Obviously, we know, you know the story. What? But not everybody knows that. Exactly. We know that, but not everybody in the world of Halime knows that. I bet there are entire cultures. You know what? I'm, this is canon. There are entire cultures that have no knowledge of ley line spires because they're so distant from them. Hell, you know, you could be growing up in, in like, you know, uh, an archipelago or a set of, you know, just, you know, a, a Polynesian-esque, you know, smattering of islands and have no context for ley line spires and just believe that, you know, there was once a time when magic went through a dry, you know, and people even have like, you know, quote unquote science or whatever in their world to support that. Yeah. That's really cool. I like that. Okay. Yeah. That's canon. We're definitely making that a thing. You need to get the canon sound in. Okay. But so, all right. Considering all that though, um, we, 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 I realize we're about 30 minutes in and we haven't really talked about the practicalities of like magic as it's seen in day-to-day life or what that looks like yeah but i mean so let's just quickly finish off the spires so we got these spires there's nine of them Mm -hmm. each is associated with an abstract one of the nine flow Mm -hmm. and they kind of disperse their part of the nine flow to the world and you know it's not super even the people that are nearest to the spire of course gonna get a little bit more of that one yes yeah actually you know what i think I don't know if this is something we really thought about talking about, but I think this might be a good thing to touch on. So I run a campaign with um, with Carter in it, and um, one of the things about it is that it takes place in um, a city-state that was built basically by the god, uh, by the regent um, Otar, the, 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 the god of will himself. Um, for the reason of basically protecting the spire, you know, as, 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 as keeping it safe from all any, anyone who would seek to take its power. Um, and there's a whole interesting history there. Cause these things were built, right? These things are built by mortals so they can be destroyed. Right. Exactly. They are. Yes, they are mortal. I mean, yes, exactly. They are very powerful and they're resilient, um, structures, but nonetheless, they are still structures and they can be demolished or can taken control of. But so what I'm trying to draw out of this, though, is the fact that this city state um, exists and it's, you know, got a few it's got, you know, it's got supporting cities. And so maybe it's better to call it a small country. But the point is, is you've got a capital city, you've got a few surrounding cities and the people that grow up here are so saturated by the uh, the 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 flows of will that it um that it, it it defines their personalities, their their ideals, their their goals, not just in a in a cultural way, but even in a sort of um, metaphysical, uh, magical way. Um, all of them are kind of more capable to innately just even reach into will, and and uh, as a result, it means that more people are born uh, natural spellcasters or capable of, of reaching those flows without the help of even just teaching. Um, it means, you know, more sorcerers, more glossal ales. Um, but it also means that, uh, these people have a very, you know, very, very specific set of, you know, ideals and bonds and flaws that are, or, or that are very typical and unifying of them. But, um, basically just saying that, uh, these, these people, um, each have, it kind of works like this when you're born you have a pretty undeveloped soul it's more like uh like an open container than anything else that hasn't has yet to be filled and as magic flows across the land the um the arcanography the you know the world as a whole it it moves across similar to the way precipitation storms rain works there's a lot of sort of analogs between weather and 
the cycles of water and the way that magic moves across the world. So as a result, uh, I mean, it, be, it, it creates complex situations where you can't always really predict just because the nine, uh, the nine, you know, ley line spires are around where they're at, that it doesn't mean that, um, you know, meteorology is an incredibly complex science, even for, you know, modern day stuff. So, you know, you added nine different. Hmm? Meteors are no joke. Yeah, no, it's very complicated. Um, but uh, so you get a situation where, let's say, a newborn is born in a small village, and they're fairly remote. Uh, "Quote unquote storm." It's, you know, it's felt in the soul more than it's felt in weather. It's 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 you, know, you could have a clear sky, but people feel a sense of foreboding. You know, an awakening in wisdom, or or like a movement of you know joy or festivity come over them. Um, and you know, as they're experiencing these reveries. Uh, the the that the child is absorbing parts of that flow they're absorbing you know trace amounts and so like early on in their development um the babe starts to orient itself um and to to be even more receptive and so you can sort of think of it as this might not be a a great reference point but if you had like a cup that was you know pinned in an axle and so it was kind of perpendicular to the ground uh, if you were to spray water at it, it would start to turn the cup, right? And uh, if if you sprayed water at it enough, the 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 cup would kind of turn until the point where it was facing towards the source of the waterfall and start to fill up from there. So if you can kind of imagine nine different you know points around a circle where water could be sprayed from it towards this cup, it slowly fills up over time with those different mixtures, but eventually kind of rests in one location where it continues to just be oriented towards. Um, it's a really strange metaphor, but does that make things kind of clear about sort of how people's, you know, ideals and their 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 personalities come about and how they're affected by magic? Does that make sense? Uh, kind of. And I mean, you know, the proximity of the spires has some effect on this, right? Yes. So this uh, is this would be like being really close to a fire hose that's always pouring, you know, will, you know, as a result, it just means that, you know, most people it's very rare for a person to not be completely doused by that their whole life growing up exactly and the same with the other spires and you know for those that aren't really close to one they may be you know in the middle of two right right exactly so if they're kind of close to two and keep in mind that these spires are very very far apart you know they're like it can be as much as a you know a couple thousand miles away from each other at the closest um uh, there, you know, but but nonetheless, you know, if you were a couple of mile, a thousand miles away from two of the nine most defining forces that, def, you know, define what our weather looks like, you would have a very particular type of weather that you would experience. I think I think we're good on spires. Though. I think we get a good understanding of what they do to people. Yeah, yeah, yeah we've definitely talked quite a bit about that. So now we can say, all right, I've, you know, been sucking up a lot of magical energy from a spire and wow. I can shoot lightning bolts at my fingertips. What's that like? <laughs> so, I mean, hell, we might have to make this into a two-parter if we're getting into this stuff now, but we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll start with it and kind of, you know, go into it. Um, but yeah, so when people reach out and, and kind of access the, the nine flow, initially it was very synthetic. I mean, it, it is inherently synthetic because it comes from this sort of net that the gnomes were capable of weaving over the world, um, you know, through the sky, you know, to bring magic down to, to, to earth. But it also, as a result is, um, it's been that way long enough that it's not, it's not just synthetic anymore. It's become so, you know, it's sort of like the, the world has recovered enough where, um, there is sort of magic that can be found through naturalism or through the divine or through other forms, currents, or kind of, you know, even using uh, crystalline structure sort of batteries or, you know, whatever it may be. But yeah, nonetheless, it kind of all has these traces of the synthetic, you know, when you get all the way down to it. It's like, you know, food that you eat in America isn't necessarily super processed all the time, but there's sort of a general, you can tell that this is probably not as natural as, you know, our bodies are have been used to eating for, you know, since we were, you know, in the hunter-gatherer days. That's something you're going to have to get used to, is that I, I have really weird metaphors sometimes. As for daily stuff, 
Yeah, what would be like kind of a good place to begin with that? Do we want, do we want to talk about kind of like how it's taught or how people discover it, how frequently people are found to use it? I think frequency is a good idea. And, you know, we talked about the different types of how people use magic, right? Some of it can be taught, but some cannot. True. Yes. Okay. So, yeah, maybe a good place to begin is kind of with the different experiences people have. So, say you're, yeah, you're born into the world, maybe around the time that you're seven or eight years old, you go through a significant experience where out of the blue, you discover that you have you know, yeah, lightning came out of your fingers or some spark or some weird way that you were able to, you know, sort of a quickening where you're aware of your, that something's not the same as everyone else. Is that, was that a Highlander reference? The Highlander does not have a, a, a... No, it's called quickening. It's called the quickening. That's literally what it's called. Yes, but they don't have... They don't have, like, the IP uh, holds on the word <laughs> quickening. Well, I hope they don't. Well, okay, whatever. The, cut, just cut it off. The speeding, the fastening, <laughs> the, the, the <laughs> making uh, at a higher s- velocity I don't know. Right. The, the kid has the realization. Yes, yes. They had, they had a greater realization, right? Um, so, you know, they become awake to the fact that they are like, oh, something's different, right? Well, a different people's kind of deal with this differently, but um, typically there's kind of, okay. So there's, there's a couple main divisions. One is the glossolale are different from most other people. So you kind of have everybody who learns magic and everybody who, you know, who kind of like learns how to use it and what it is and the people who just do it without thinking. Um, and those are known as glossolales. And the reason for that is because the magic is inherently tied to some people call it the tongue of creation. Some people just refer it to it as the old language. Um, but uh, whatever it is, they basically forever ago, two of the gods bound magic to verbiage, uh, bound it to, you know, speaking quick, mm-hmm. quick factoid about the ancient tongue. Would you say that like the two languages that might be closest? Well, actually, let's go with three. The three languages might be closest to it in order. Might be like celestial, abyssal, and draconic. I would say yes and no. That at its core, you kind of need a reference point because the gods only are able to speak what the gods know. But at the same time, they the the necessity of creating the language to bind magic was making something wholly unlike any language that was known so that it was very clear when you were speaking in it and not in another thing. And it's not like you can just say the words and cause it to happen. You still need to draw that magic from somewhere. You still have to be capable of that. But, you know, through training, that's what is able to bring that stuff out. So anyways, you got this language, right? And some people speak it and others don't. And if you speak it, you you could be a bunch of different things. If you don't speak it, you're known as a glossal ale, um, which is kind of equivalent of a sorcerer. It's sort of like having magic in your blood um, because the way that you cause magic to happen is, well, you know, let's talk about, let's talk about the rule before we talk about the exception. Um, so, all right, so you've got, you know, all these different people learning the language of magic, learning that they're capable of harnessing it. Now, the truth is, is that, at its core, just about anybody can learn some rudimentary level of magic, um, really, really simplistic things. It might take them a long time, and they would have to go to a university where they have to have to learn these incredibly complex um, rituals or whatnot to make it happen. But they could, they could, you know, potentially do it. Um, a wizard's spell book is a book because a spell might take up a simple spell might take up two to three pages of writing. So. To be able to, 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 to cast something and in a short period of time, you need to be able to have a, an incredible capability of, of, of reading your own writing. Um, what I mean by that is that everybody develops kind of their own shorthand of like, here's what works for me in terms of like, here's how to get my mind perfectly oriented in the way that it needs to be to reach out and make this one very you know, tried and true practiced spell happen um, because magic is can be pretty dangerous and anything that's like experimental is usually can cause a lot, a lot, a lot of damage. So there's sort of these like 
facts that they or, or not facts, but like, you know, recovered known spells that they uh, that, that that they teach over and over again to each generation because it's so dangerous to deviate from those. Yeah, I was going to say that, you know, with regard to like the shorthand you're talking about, mm-hmm. magic is, 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 you know, as much as, you know, you can go to like a wizard academy and be taught magic. Right. It's still a very personal thing because each person's connection to the nine flow is so different that one technique may be easier for some that is incredibly difficult for others. And Right, exactly. Yeah. So like if you go to, oh, go ahead. And, you know, each person upon, you know, casting a spell that, you know, another person might cast might still do it slightly different, even though they were taught kind of the same general way, just because of mm-hmm. the different mixture of the nine. Well, and also, I mean, a big part of it, too, is the fact that uh, it, it all, I mean, it does trace back to your origin, too. So, like, what, um, and I don't mean, like, you know, what's your backstory? I mean, uh, what is the first experience of like kind of that awakening into magic, your holy idea, the thing that you draw from, what is the abstract that you go back to? So, you know, as you kind of, you know, progress further and develop, um, you know, greater capabilities, you can learn to reach into other parts of the nine flow, but you will always have a core origin that, you know, that you keep on returning to. Sometimes significant events in life will, you know, cause that to shift and change. But um, typically a person based on their, you know, that, sort of like where their personality comes from and stuff will be related to one, you know, very specific. If you're pulling from perfection and you're trying to perform a spell that depends on an origin of creativity, you're going to have to, it'd be like translating something from a com- with like two completely different languages without even the same root core, you know, it's not two Latinate languages or anything like that. Um, but yeah, so in, and in, in order to kind of, it's, it's like, you can think of it kind of like handwriting, you know, everybody's writing in the same, you know, language, but it's going to look different for each person. Yeah. Yeah. I'd probably make a long story short there and we move on from there. Cause once I think again, that's a very good analog. There's so much to talk about there. Yeah. So I'm a wizard. You're a wizard. I've Carter. been trained in a certain way. Yeah. I'm a wizard. What, like, what are the types of wizards that there are? Is there like, you know, the wizard that can, you know like forcibly grapple magic put it in a headlock and then have it you know do its thing or kind of yeah well so i mean so wizards are maybe a better way to say this is you've got kind of magicians in general anybody who's a practitioner of magic on any level is just considered a magician pure and simple wizards are the most academic so you know they're the ones who actually like go to school and like go to an academy somewhere and learn how to harness specific types of magic you know, they, it might be as, you know, well-developed as a university, but there's a lot of sort of like hedge schools that are very simplistic. And sometimes people send their, you know, kids away just to keep them from killing themselves, uh, just to keep them so that they have enough knowledge that, that yeah, they're not going to burn themselves alive with their own magic. Yeah, um, it's dangerous. But uh, yeah, you know, you so you, you know, not everybody gets the same education when it comes to that stuff. And, you know, getting a good education in, in, in school can be extremely expensive. Or maybe you need patronage or, or, you know, you honestly, some people commit their lives to it sort of like you would commit to, you know, the military, you know, where you make an agreement with them that you'll serve for, you know, a certain number of years in exchange for education. Um, But whatever the case, however, that person may learn a wizard is definitely more academic. Then you've got people like... um, a lot of the faith-based magic is um, centered around different temples, um, which, you know, that's making a connection to the nine flow proper. And that still has a level of academia. It hears, you know, tried and true prayers or, or ways of kind of invoking the presence of a regent or a lesser deity. But nonetheless, it, it is it is separate because whereas in like wizarding magic, you're more about pulling the sort of the periodic elements of of the world the core building blocks together to make something happen with faith magic it's 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 about a connection and a strength of your deity like on behalf of your deity so now now one thing to kind of note is that um the regents actually so so one of the the differences is that so you've got the regents but you also have the choir of mutes we haven't talked much about the choir of mutes but since we're you know already so many minutes in i would say we'll just leave it at they're the evil gods you're the bad boys. Yes, the bad ones. Um, the, I thought you said bad boys. I was like, okay. Not the bad one, the bad ones. I did say bad boys. Um, oh, all right. Well, then there you go. Uh, 
And, and girls, and girls. Yeah, I mean, it's... And non-gender, but... <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, but, uh, yeah, so one of the distinctions between the two um, that's kind of relevant to clerics and um, faith-based magic is that um, you can definitely draw from the power of um, the, the the choir of mutes, and it looks sort of like a tainted, twisted version of that same abstract that's sort of been reappropriated by their own powers. Uh, but the the difference between the two is in your relationship to them. Um, whereas in, with regents, they're more kind of like patrons or in the same way that you might entreaty the Lord on the hill, you know, to like help you out uh, if, you know, barbarians are coming to, you know, pillage local towns or whatever. It's more kind of like that kind of relationship than it would be, you know, praying to a God and worshiping. Um, the regions actually forbid worship of themselves. Um, they do not consider themselves beings worthy of worship. Um, they uh, instead, they're, so they're sort of a, a type of like, you know, the way that you might pray to a saint in the Catholic church or, you know, entreaty somebody, uh, you know, it's like invoking and seeking somebody's favor um, versus, you know, the absentium, which actually demands the, the, the choir of mutes demand worship. I imagine that most of the kind of like, I'm sure we have some evil clerics, right? That are like very much the worship of the, the either the nameless one or the specific choir or the choir in general. Mm-hmm. But I also imagine there's a lot of warlocks that are employed mm-hmm. by them. Um, yeah. So it definitely depends. There's the thing with warlocks is that they, they run the whole gamut. I mean, you know, that's a, that's a whole other uh, thing in and of itself. But yeah, so warlocks, they don't actually, they they have about just enough magic to be able to reach out and make contact with another magical source. In the D&D tradition, they're, they're making a pact with somebody. So it's more of a master, mentor, and student role where you've, you, you make an agreement. Now, it depends, obviously, with the... Uh, you know, if you're if you're making a pact with demonic forces, you're probably not just their student. You're probably more like their slave, and they're you know trying to get something out of you. You've promised them your soul or something like that. Yeah, but you could see like the fae connection, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So there are um, uh, fae creatures. There, there, there are sort of these you know strange you know beings beyond the the known realms. Um, there are. They're even ethereal creatures, you know, beings, not necessarily regents, but even, you know, archangels um, who see a benefit in kind of taking a mortal under their wing as a way of sort of enacting some of their own power in the world. Um, so, yeah, there's all sorts of different connections that can be made with um, warlocks. So, so we've talked about warlocks. We've talked about clerics. We've talked about wizards. I think what we should do now is talk about, like, how they connect and practice it right the um, you had this distinction you're talking about kind of the the division the between the three oh more like the distinction between like the um, god what you call it conductors Uh, weavers and binders yes that's the one do that all right uh i think we'll talk about that in just a second the last thing i want to just touch on for just a moment with sorcerers is kind of you know like like i said as promised we talked about the except uh the role here's the exception all of those have to do with speaking in the dead, uh, you know, the dead tongue, the old language, whatever you want to call it, the ancient language. I, I hesitate to use the term ancient language because it's literally what they call it in inheritance. And I want to, you know, differentiate it or at least not get sued. Um, we love you, Christopher Paolini. I think your books are great. Yeah. So the uh, sorcerers, their thing that's different, the glossolales, um, is that they don't actually speak the language. They have no access to it and they're incapable of learning it. Um, nobody knows exactly why this is, but it's a pretty common phenomena that has all sorts of different names depending on where you're at. Nevertheless, they're able to interact with the world of magic through the language um, because they reach into a pre-syllabic era. So, like, it's all, there's something about their soul or about their, their the nature of who they are that allows them to touch the world as it was before there was this language before there was this uh, limiting so by using their voice by using their you know um their the connection between their voice and the world around them um and their soul they're actually able to cause magic to happen but they don't know what they're saying and they it's not something that can really be taught so as a result you get sorcerers who um teach each other methods of reaching you know self-awareness and sort of like you know reaching into the self to learn more and to develop more about themselves but it doesn't necessarily 
uh, it's not something that can be taught as a, you know, you can't copy a spell over into a sorcerer's spell book and, you know, teach them how to do it. Now, they can learn magic that way. You know, there are some people who are capable of doing both, but it's a it's a very difficult task. And it's, you know, it's an entirely different form of magic. It'd be like, you know, learning to speak an entirely different language. You know, you, you grew up learning English and now you're learning Japanese. So, yeah, we kind of we've talked about all those different types of magicians. Hopefully this isn't loading things too much, but there is one other kind of division. And this more has to do with what is your focus what is your strength in terms of like how you draw on magic and that is conductors weavers and binders so with conductors so yeah so conductors weavers and binders the main difference between the three is that magic kind of is a three-part system it's a you know it'd be a little complex to break try and break down what exactly is going on there but basically you see something you want to make a connection to it and you have the connection. So, you know, magic is broken down to a source and, you know, a, a point, uh, a, 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 whether it be a person or an entity or something that you want to affect. And then, you know, and then it's the process of actually affecting the thing. So, you know, two points in a line, sort of think of it like that. The binders, weavers and conductors are all about kind of how they make that process happen. So, for instance, binders are more focused on um, the connection itself. And Oh, dude, we're going to have to talk about racial tide pools in an entirely different episode. I totally forgot about that. Oh, it's a pretty big thing to not mention. But binders are... I mean, just real quick, you know, races have kind of a tied together through the nine flow, and this is what we call racial tide pool, and people can draw from that to few of those spells. Boom, done. Wow, you man, this is see. This is why I need you to to summarize things more often. Is because you could do that in a couple of seconds. Yeah, basically, yes. So, i.e., all of the dragonborn share a racial tide pool. So, if you were to kill, you know, ten thousand dragonborn, it would sort of be felt in the same way that you know Obi Wan Kenobi is like, oh, you know, I, yeah, it's like the sound of ten thousand, you know, or millions of souls that were. It cried out and were suddenly silenced. It's kind of like that feeling where there's a general awareness of how people are doing based on where they are in the world um, uh, or what race they are. Um, so binders are focused on drawing from that. You know, they kind of draw from their racial tide pool to cast magic and to enact um, things in the world. Weavers, they're focused on the construction of sort of the 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 the, the, the programming of the spell. They're about actually creating a, a clear you know, lattice work. Um, and so they typically, you know, have like literal Dr. Strange style, you know, visual lattice that gets uh, formed when they start practicing their magic. Um, they're more about the, uh, starting from the source. Yeah. So kind of like initiating that contact and conductors are, um, more about, uh, Oh, you know what? I think I screwed that up. No, I think, I think you're right. Then the conductors, the ones that like, draw magic to them yes so they're focused on drawing the latent energy of like the nearby area they affect it then to bring about immediate results so whereas a weaver might you know you might have a faith-based weaver who is drawing from a god because they have a tried and true method of like i know that this you know you know prayer looks like this and this is how i reach out to this god and and you know enact their will uh, a conductor will be like, well, there's a little bit of light from that and there's a little bit of life in that plant and there's a little bit of, you know, and I'm going to draw, you know, a little bit from all of these different things, a little bit of the heat from the air and pull all that energy together to cast the spell. You know, they're less focused on, you know, one specific thing. They're more focused on drawing from what's immediately around them. You know, binders it's are... It's like the spirit bomb. What's that? I'm doing Z. Oh, sure. I, I've never watched Dragon Ball Z, so I wouldn't know, unfortunately. The audience will understand me. I'm speaking to you, audience. <laughs> the audience will remember this. Um, and yeah, so yeah, and then Binders, their whole thing is, uh, you know, con- when they connect to those racial tide pools, they're um, drawing on the empathetic connection itself, you know, feeling the the source of their relationship to all of their other people combined and 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 pulling a little bit from that. Um, Though I do imagine the the most powerful binders can probably reach past the racial tide pools and into the greater tide pool of you know the knower the knowers themselves. Yeah, there are, in in legend there are a couple of figures that stand out as having had capabilities like that. They're kind of those are some really interesting stories we could definitely touch on at some point. 
I think we might have to make it a two-parter. Uh, sounds like you kind of had an idea of like, um, what do you mean? You know where to go from here. Well, just because we have a couple of things we haven't really talked about, like I think I think we covered most of it. Like, what else would you want to say? Oh, I don't know. I guess natural mag- magicians we didn't really cover. That's true. Like Dargan. Well, you know what? Maybe we'll come back. I think I, I feel like that's enough to go off of, though. I mean, we've I think <laughs> we've definitely explored magic for I think we got quite I a think bit. This is yeah. A good episode. It can be self-contained. I think this is good. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm, I'm sure I'm sure people will enjoy this. So uh, yeah, I mean, if that's the case, I think um, I think we'll we'll call it. Well, everyone, uh, thank thank you for listening in. We um, hope you've enjoyed this exploration to the lands of Sadar and in the arcane sea and magic in the regions and the, and, and the realms beyond, for that matter. Um, or if maybe you found some good material to add to your own stories. Uh, but uh, yeah, you can reach us uh, if you've got any questions or comments, or um, if you want if you've got a, if you want to submit some ideas of your own, you can reach uh, us at. Um, at 1000 icons on uh, Twitter. That's the number one followed by the word thousand and the word icons, all one. And uh, if you like this podcast, uh, make sure to give us, drop us a five star rating in Google Play or Stitcher or uh, iTunes. Uh, and, uh, you know, give us a give us a nice review and um, we'll see you next time. Other other podcast services are available. Yeah, I, um, we're going to start loading this onto SoundCloud, too, so that you can reach us there. But uh, yeah, um, we'll see you next time. And uh, anything else, Carter? Is there anything I'm missing? Yep. Uh, goodbye, friends of the Lord Keepers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, goodbye and uh, have a great rest of your week.